in the end, of course, you are not omniscient. You're not perfectly objective, whatever that even means. I think it's not even important to want that. But yeah, for me, one of the main values of, of effective altruism is basically just being really um, epistemically <laughs> responsible <laughs> and humble and to to not just like very naively think you have the, the solution to fixing the world, but to really looking at the data, <laughs> looking at also just like different opinions, right? Because th that's where you can learn the most. And yeah, just do your best job regarding just educating yourself. But then of course you can only act on, on what then feels right to you because what else would you do? Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 166 of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week, we talked to Anna Riedel of Effective Altruism Vienna, someone who's thinking around the question of how to do good in this world with imperfect information is applied with unusual rigor and articulation. And so I deeply enjoyed having her come on the show to introduce people to this sector of economic thinking and its intersections with psychology and cognitive science. Because if you're anything like I am, then lately your social media feeds have been totally clogged with people who are doubling down on their attachment to an entrenchment within some kind of false security, some kind of conveniently simple story about the world that leaves out vital, necessary dimensions, crucial data. I've been growing weary lately, watching people on both sides of any kind of political spectrum or philosophical divide decide that everyone who disagrees with them qualifies as sheeple. I mean, really, how is this not religious warfare? And are we not going to be reflecting on this in another two to five hundred years the same way that we look back on the Crusades now? Stepping outside of ourselves ecstatically to reflect as if strangers on our lives and our current moment is a big theme in this show. And I think a conversation on bounded rationality, arguments for epistemic humility, and an investigation of the practical measures of how to allocate the limited time, energy, and attention each of us possess to the improvement of our world these are all crucial discussions to be had right now, even in the face of this daunting mystery and its attendant unknowns. We must act anyway. This is the conversation in which the good, the true, and the beautiful align in concerted effort. And while we're on that subject, now feels like a really good time to thank everyone who has been supporting this show on Patreon, everyone who has dropped tent stakes into this liminal zone 
amidst the numerous unclassified wonders at the edge of our adjacent possible. Those of you living here with me in the growing tent city, the temporary autonomous zone constructed at the edge of an ever-shifting margin of weirdness, already know that the treasures available for you here include over a dozen unedited and patron-exclusive interviews, an ever-growing archive of book club discussions, and all kinds of stuff. But I want to let everybody know that I'm going to start recording and releasing regularly scheduled solo episodes every other week in between regular episodes of this podcast for patrons at the $5 level and up. So hop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. If you care to join this week's newest patrons, Kelsey Joseph, Albert S., David LaDuc, and Christopher Deridix, as well as roughly 200 other people. And with that, I hope you will give a warm welcome to Anna Riedel and that you enjoy this conversation as much as both of us do. So how are you today? I was super tired and very confused about the uh, time change. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I had a super long nap in the afternoon and now I feel mostly very excited. So yeah, very good. <laughs> How about you? Good. Yeah. My sleep is a complete casino with a, a toddler. It's like, there's no question. It's like, mm -hmm. what will it be? <laughs> it's a lottery. Okay. And then the accident, right? Well, there's that. And then there's also the, I'm probably a lark pretending to be an owl. Mm -hmm. As far as circadian rhythms are concerned, like I love staying up late and I also love getting up early. That doesn't and work. <laughs> it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Amusingly, I'm reading uh, Greg Egan's novel, Distress, this a beautiful book. It's like 2050s sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he talks about is his protagonist, this journalist, is, is on a uh, melatonin augment and blocking cycle. So that he can do his work rather than a sine wave, he has hacked his biochemistry. So he's, it's a square wave synth. So he'll be like in the middle of a project and just like, you know, oh boy, passes out. <laughs> but that sounds like my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like yeah. I, I had insomnia for a super long time. And then I actually have mild sleeping medication I take regularly. And then I'm super addicted to energy drinks during the day <laughs> because otherwise I don't even get to default. Yeah. Well, yeah. So maybe that's actually the place to dive into bounded rationality, right? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because the notion that we are like, this is what makes sense given the circumstances, given yes. the circumstances <laughs> of my job and, and my the facts that I have about my life and what I know about the resources available to me in terms of my time and my attention, my <laughs> that like I put myself in these situations that look insane. And so many people do this. We find ourselves standing on the edge of a plank, but we got there through a series of what seemed like sensible decisions. So perhaps now is a good time to uh, introduce yourself, how you got interested in asking this kind of question in the first place. So, okay, first, my name is Anna Riedel. Many people uh, pronounce it wrongly because it's a German way, uh, German word. So it's not Riedel, it's Riedel. 
And currently I study cognitive science in Vienna, Austria. And usually when I start the story of where my interest in rationality started, then I would start in my teenage years and really just these deep philosophical questions of kind of waking up as a mind uh, in a body that you know is mortal and wondering what to believe and what to do. And really this question of meaning. Um, so then I, I got uh, involved with taking a lot of philosophy classes next to school already. Um, and then, yeah, for myself, I really answered the question of meaning during that time with activism, right? really just contributing to the world as I thought back then is reasonable to contribute. And I was really interested in, in the whole topics of, yeah, just like epistemology, basically. So I read a lot of Philip K. Dick. He was a big influence on me, uh, right? Like it's the central question of like, what is true? Uh, am I a human or do I just think I'm a human? Uh, is this real or do I just think it is real? And then, um, yeah, really interested in, in this question of how can I th see more clearly? And when I came to Vienna, then the two major influences were, of course, like really the studies. So I first did uh, psychology, then went on with cognitive science. And then also this meetup group called Rationality Vienna, where we would just read all the behavioral economics papers and decision theory and physics basics and philosophy of science. And I just continued being very, very interested in the question of rationality because it's really on a formal level, no matter what discipline you're in, it's the question of what is true and what to do. And it just brings so many different disciplines together. And if you've answered that, then you, you're done, basically. <laughs> This actually seems like a manageably small way to get involved in this. This is the porthole through which we can enter this conversation. You made a Facebook post about how rationality does not equal rationalism. Yes. And you're differentiating between Aristotelian rationality and a, a kind of bottom-up emergent process. I, I'd like to hear you speak to that because I think that's the substance from which we can debark on this adventure yes so my main point there was to emphasize how rationality is defined in cognitive science and in artificial intelligence which is this notion of maximizing utility or in the end this uh, means uh, means end uh, functionality right just like achieving what you want to achieve and rationalism uh, is in philosophy usually the opposite to empiricism which is this a priori approach to knowledge and rationality in in the cognitive sciences is of course very constrained by just feedback from the real world so it's not a priori uh, but more a combination of both. All right, so let's talk about bounded rationality. This is an experiment, folks. Normally, this kind of conversation would be going on somewhere else, on some other podcast. And I'm puncturing the membrane between the two shows I do in order to get into the squishy bits of economics. And well, we'll, we'll, we'll just see what happens. Let's talk a little bit about why the model of homo economicus, right? This self-interested, rational actor that is the, the default agent for the economics models that have largely created the modern world that we live in. I mean, at least insofar as they have sculpted 20th century economic policy and practice is concerned. This person that is being plugged into these economic games is not an actual entity. This thing does not exist. Why does this not exist? What are we missing in this violent oversimplification? And what does it look like when we replace this with something else? 
So when we start from there, then we're starting basically historical and then the main jump from there. So it's basically, first of all, it is a normative model, um, like the um, Homo economicus, so kind of the ideal. And then the question is, okay, how close are we to the ideal? And then, of course, the research by Herbert Simon and Kahneman and Tversky were really giving a lot of insight in this is not how it is. And there's this um, systematic deviations or biases from this normative idea of rationality. But it's not just those systematic deviations, but just fundamental, just like boundedness, because basically <laughs> Homo economicus uh, assumes omniscience. So really having all the information. So for example, in AI, when you speak about someone being rational, then this means making the best decision in terms of expected value, given the information you have. So of course, you cannot suddenly make the best information completely independent of the knowledge you actually have, but kind of in this <laughs> in this godlike manner uh, where you suddenly, I don't know, can just like compute everything and, and know everything, which is of course not how it is. So this means you can still talk about a notion of rationality, but under bounded conditions. So then something can be bounded rational when you, yeah, just like given the knowledge, make the best decisions as kind of this less intense normative standard. But um, the research by Kahneman and Tversky basically made um, the point that we are not even doing that. So there's even more systematic deviations from that. So, yeah, so it's like the walk a mile or you know, a kilometer. I don't know. Does that phrase translate in Europe? Like, how do you, how do you say that? Sorry, what did you want to say? <laughs> Walk a mile in another man's shoes. I, I think this, this notion of the understanding, the context dependency of a, a particular yes. outcome, you know, a particular logic, you had to be there. Like, how would you translate that into general parlance i think it's the same words in german just as the german words so uh, it does intuitively make sense to me what you're saying <laughs> so give some examples of how this is self-defeating maybe how we believe that we are doing something that is right that makes sense at the time and then doesn't ultimately in retrospect mm. Right now, I can't point to decisions, but regarding... So underlying there is the assumption that your kind of epistemic beliefs are important to fulfill certain axioms uh, or certain rules. Otherwise, because your, your decisions are based on your judgments, which are kind of your beliefs, you have to have a certain yeah, way of thinking about your beliefs. And one way how, how we... Yeah, misbehave, so to speak, there is, for example, just like availability... Um, bias, which is just you will overestimate things by how they are represented in the in the environment. So I think the most classical example there is how, how often people think they will, for example, die by, I don't know, plane crashes or um, shark attacks, because they're just more interesting to report. So they're more represented in the environment. And then uh, people overestimate those things versus <laughs> the actual killers, which are basically heart attacks. Um, so because of that, they then will maybe be afraid of going into the sea, uh, but still eat uh, that juicy burger. So this plugs into a much broader question about incentive structures, right? Oh, interesting. I would have gone somewhere else, but okay, let's see. <laughs> so we know we have an evolutionary bias, for example, to remember emotionally negative events more potently than emotionally positive events. This is like one of the things about the, the reason why it's important to do a gratitude journal because you have to, 
because you act actively have to get over that hump and use the executive function and make the decision to exercise that thing. It's not going to happen on its own because the evolutionary psychology is tilted in a different direction. I feel like economics is this way. Like the entire conversation of economics is looking in a different direction from where the actual value of our world actually resides, or at least all of this stuff that you're, we're talking about here suggests that that is the case, that it's a tautological situation where things are not entirely valuable just because they're valuable. But obviously this is clear in like hype cycles, art markets and, and, and this kind of thing. You know, you see a lot of this in uh, naive follower behavior in trading and markets and so on. So what kind of sense do you make of the gap between the way that our historic environment has encoded itself in us and in the way that we make decisions and the way that we we notice things and we think about things and the actual value of things in the world that we're actually living in to give a concrete example of this. You know, lots of people say, you know, money doesn't make you happy. Everybody spends a lot of time working for it. Money is easy to, it's easy to quantify. So it's easy to notice, observe, measure, trace, and then decide that that's what you're going to optimize for. And then you get rich you hack that game, you get rich, and then you're miserable at the top, you know, and you're a, you're a depressed billionaire. So yeah, I would just love to hear you just sort of riff on the gap between the reality and the maps that we're using to navigate it. Uh, while, while listening to you, I felt like my head will explode because like for every sentence, I had to like remember a response to it. Um, so yeah, I could go on now for a very long time. Uh, but I'll start with Please what do. you said in the very in the very beginning. With um, we are biased to remember negative things, um, and then my first point to that would be so. For example, prospect prospect theory, uh, which is the the publication that Kahneman uh, and Tversky got the Nobel Prize for, which states that we subjectively value negative events in monetary sense um, as more negative than we value positive ones as positive. And then like the standard psychophysics of uh, diminishing returns, uh, no, dim sorry, diminishing mar marginal utility and so forth. Um, but so yes, there it says, um, okay, negative is more negative than positive is positive. Um, but then your point is, um, this is a bias that, that we are more focused on one, right? But I would say this, of course, uh, does it's not a bias at all, because when you just think about <laughs> about rationality, meaning reaching your goals in the world, then all, all of that is kind of um, instrumentally really um, focused around your own existence. So if you would, for example, right, you have like instrumental values and terminal values. And if you would make like a graph of all your values connected and then you would page rank them, then your own existence is basically instrumental for everything. So anything that's a harm to yourself has to weigh super, super heavy. Otherwise you couldn't function. So um, you could say bias as in it's distorted from an objective reality, but what does that even mean? It is not biased in a purely functional manner. And then underneath that is, of course, the question, what do we even mean with something being epistemically rational versus biased? Because there's this question of um, how much do I really know what is true uh, to kind of 
reach my goals, right? This um, this whole notion like uh, to live is to know and yeah, just basically a constructivist notion. It doesn't really matter whether this is not actually that bad because it helps you to reach your, your goals in the end. And as I said, you not getting harmed um, and so forth seems to be instrumental for anything else, really. So that's the first point <laughs> for many things you said. Uh, want to repeat maybe the other points or do you want to answer to that? Well, yeah, that's, I just have this problem of breaking off on tangents. I mean, Hopefully folks who listen to this are in it just to like strike a spark off of something and pursue it and you know that they will find resolution and that that's that we're not going to give them resolution in this conversation i wouldn't worry about that um, could we <laughs> but i mean but that's sort of the point right is that you know once you accept the evolved limits the contextual dependencies of the ways that we think about things and all of that, you know, it, it changes the, at least it changed for me, my relationship to the the goals of knowledge, right? Like it changed the way that I think about what science is for and, and also therefore what I should be spending my time on. And so there's this interesting kind of good, true, beautiful question about like moving from just angel counting and into practice, like accepting limitations and constraints and making the decision to act. But then you have to leave open that, that trap door of my decision is based on all of this conditioning and my, I don't know, I'm just, I, I could just keep sort of printing more tape <laughs> until you want to rip it. <laughs> Okay. Oh, I see. Uh, sorry, I'm too polite. I would not jump in. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the problem of acting in the world uh, and bounded rationality. Um, so I think one of the main ideas uh, that really helped me to understand the problem of boundedness was the understanding of computational complexity, right? Like just you cannot solve any computational problem of just rational decision-making in the world. And then even this meta-rationality of, for example, asking yourself, how basically useful are different computations you can do? These are even less tractable, right? So uh, it it's just gets gets harder and harder. Um, and then there's this framework of computational rationality where you weigh in the cost of computation and the opportunity cost of computation in the real world. And then um, just the time of thinking until you act, uh, <laughs> like, diminishes very quickly. Uh, so I think in the paper by Gershman, there's literally this diagram where it says, stop thinking and act now. <laughs> so uh, when it's yeah, just like in online reasoning, there's just one assumption at least is that there's this uh, huge speed accuracy trade-off. But I think that's not the whole story. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a way to start to, um, yeah, you can, you can only be open-minded, gather as much information about a topic as possible but then you have to act and yeah, you will not solve any of those problems, problems a priori. You need feedback from the world. So this seems like where we can start talking about what effective altruism is. Ah, that, that's yeah. where you wanted to go now. Yeah, yeah because <laughs> acting, because, yes, because it's mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the question of with limited information, faulty models, a dubious narrator, 
You know, <laughs> like, what do I do? Where do I put my coin? You know, like, how do I, how do I, ultimately, this is a question that touches on so many other things, because it's, it's a really deep question of what happens if we just assume that everyone is trying to do the right thing, right? And that we all just have completely different ideas about what the world is and what matters and, and how to get there. And yes. So there's a kind of two components to this. One is the way that this changes how we relate to other people in terms of how we understand their moral center and what it means to be good or to do good. And then there's something a little bit more street level, maybe a little easier to answer, which is just about with your work with Effective Altruism Austria, practically speaking... What does it mean to be an effective altruist? Has anyone on this podcast ever talked about the topic at all? Because then no. I'll start. Okay. Wow. Okay. Bring us in. <laughs> okay. So effective altruism. It sounds a bit more esoteric than it is. I'm not so happy about the name choice really, but it's basically a community and a philosophy of people who try to think very rationally and quantitatively and scientific about how to do the most good. So uh, in comparison to like normal science <laughs> or academia, it's really a community that asks first the question, okay, what is good? What kind of problems do we have in the world? And what, what works? And how could we take action in a cost-effective way, right? Like how can we, in relation to money and time or whatever resource we put in, help the most beings or whatever you consider morally relevant? And then there's, of course, a lot of questions in there, like, okay, what is good? Who is uh, worth helping? Which is, I mean, you, you can just spend all your life thinking about that. Personally, I've made this kind of meta decision to not go too deep in there, like even about like deciding which moral framework to operate in. So I just apply this meta heuristic of robustness. So where do the different uh, moral frameworks agree? Because often they do agree. The ontology basically says for roughly follow rules that then lead to usually good outcomes. So you kind of have this interconnectedness there. So then I, I just like personally move this aside. But of course, there's people who actually think quite deeply about it. Just personally, I don't. And yeah, so it's this super big community globally of yeah people trying to answer those questions and answers that are currently kind of associated as a kind of second layer with the community are first of all um, effective giving, um, which is cost-effective evidence-based donations. So there's this uh, research organization called GiveWell that give recommendation on top charities that do orders of magnitudes more good per dollar spent, basically. And then the other uh, area is career choice, because where you will spend the most time really is in your professional work. And then the question is, okay, what should I work on? There you usually start with first narrowing down what the biggest global problems are at all, and then go from there. And on a more practical side, personally, my, my journey in there was, so first of all, uh, this was exactly the community I needed um, and, and still dearly love because it answered both the question of like, how can I meaningfully contribute to society in really thinking very clearly about it, which is my other big driver 
So this together is just marvelous. And I'm just so glad this exists. I'm just like already by existing, the world for me is a, so, so much better place. But then I started on a quite naive notion of like what we can even know and how easy is it to kind of optimize those problems, these answers to those questions. And then really had to see, okay, there's way more uncertainty in, for example, data. And of course, the data we have is kind of limited by research that has been done before. And so it's really quite hard. Yeah, there's just way more unknowns <laughs> than we might have thought. And so I think my main way of thinking about the community has changed as I think it's more a bottom-up approach. So I think effective altruism tries to answer those those questions of what is already there, right? What are people already taking care of? And then what other pr big problems are there Like that would just be quantitatively very nice if we had solved them, right? What's the size of different problems? Like how many people or sentient beings or whatever are affected or what are big risks? And then uh, how tractable would they be to kind of um, estimate the expected value? And then very importantly, this, the neglectedness of really answering this marginal uh, utility of acting in a field. So I think it makes a lot of sense to have this top-down approach of first analyzing the landscape, but then really finding solutions or even that is kind of contributing to this bottom-up process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in that same way, it's related to that question of where does the decision to perform a scientific experiment come from, right? How do we choose to research this thing instead of this other thing? Because that's an investment of time and attention resources. And that depends mightily on what you're able to observe, what you're able to notice, the differentiations you're capable of making in the world, the way that you have been taught or have learned to frame things. So there is always this environmental or perhaps social, if you want to talk about it in a vastly expanded sense of social that includes interoperability with everything, you know, the way that we move in our built environments, the way that we relate to other organisms in our ecosystems and so on. You know, I think of all of this as, as broadly social. And I, I know you're a, uh, an enthusiast of Bayesian probability, this notion that our expectations of the world are shaped by our experience and that what we believe to be likely or unlikely is not so much a universal claim as it is a statement on our training data if you will. Just as an aside, I saw a piece of interesting news recently that there is a hypothesis going around about dreaming, that dreaming is a way for the brain to inject noise into the training data, right? So as to keep our inferential processes from overfitting to their experience, you know? So it's like, well, if you don't dream at all, then you may be expecting today to be just like yesterday. Whereas if you dream, it opens that window of possibility, basically. And that window of possibility is where the reality actually lies because our sampling is so poor. Ultimately, each of us is just, you know, just taking such a tiny slice of the fullness of things. So what I'm getting at is we're social creatures. And okay, I'm, I'm curious. Probability. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I'm curious for you, how you couch all of this in the social, like not just looking at the way that you make decisions, the way that you experience the world as an individual, but the way that other beings and their views that are different from yours are folded into all of those things. And yeah, take as much time with that as you like, please. 
<laughs> Again, so many topics in there. So first, because you just in general mentioned Bayesian probability, the whole topic of Bayesian epistemology is really uh, as a concept underneath the whole rationality framework, because in the axioms of rationality, you assume people follow certain axioms, which is only one approach to, to the whole topic. But yeah, so underneath uh, you have th this whole conception and there's really, really good work on, on the whole topic, just really going through, okay, if you assume certain things, um, that where does that lead us? And there's also a lot of big uh, unresolved topics in there that are also practically relevant in machine learning, like problem of the priors, where we even noticed, or like not we, but like <laughs> where researchers no, uh, noticed that kind of learning from scratch is quite hard. So for example, when we, when we look at the uh, work by Josh Tenenbaum, He uh, looks at uh, developmental psychology and how, like, baby, uh, basically what babies already know and whether we can already kind of build in kind of a physics engine as uh, priors into an AI system to make it then actually better adapted to, to the world around it. So these very analytical problems actually have relevance and it's all connected <laughs> in the end, which makes it so beautiful because it's really quite an elegant topic, I would say. Yeah. And yeah, lots of other problems in there. So for example, uh, when you look at the work by Titelbaum, uh, he has written a textbook about Bayesian epistemology and the topic in there that struck me uh, a lot was, so you have this idea of you have priors and then you have incoming information and you, you update <laughs> your, uh, your beliefs. But then one point he makes is that over time, you can also change your evidential standards. So what you learn first can influence what you even take as evidence. So if you have certain beliefs, you will not even see certain things as evidence anymore. Like, let's say I'm I'm super orthodox uh, Christian or something, and then someone tells me something that just is completely against my beliefs. I would maybe not even listen to them and say like, okay, no, they're the, the devil that tries to seduce me uh, away from my beliefs because I've learned these other things first. And this uh, connects to me. There's this big debate ongoing in cognitive science. I think it's called mind rationality and cognition. And there's also this point of just really how things you know really influence what you will perceive. You don't just perceive data completely uh, without any judgment, but really your goals and your beliefs change what you even look at. And so what you already know, it influences what information can basically even get into you. So uh, not giving any answers here, but I really like the problem. So that's that. Then the rest or basically the main point you made was about the social embeddedness. And so one problem this makes me think of is the whole topic of framing, of course, where I really like the research about, like the classical paper is about disease problem where the same numbers are once described as you having to choose whether to save so and so many people or whether to definitely let certain people die. And then the argument is made that how can we be so influenced by the framing? But I wouldn't say we are biased, but actually there is additional information in there, right? So if I come in a room and it's a meeting and people are like, oh, you have to decide now whether to save a lot of people, then their framing already gives me a lot of additional information what this thing is about, actually. So it's not distracting me from the number, but it's additional information about what are the values of the group and and so forth. So um, I, I don't think it's necessarily biased there when you take framing into account. While, of course, um, when, when you have reason, like in a general multi-agent situation, to, for example, assume that the information might be distorted, it makes a lot of sense to really go, wait, what are the underlying numbers? What is the underlying thing in the world? And to translating this back for you. But depending on the environment, it can be totally reasonable to my mind to just listen to the framing because it's 
additional information. Yeah, and so many other things I could say now, but I'll, I'll leave you, let you speak again as well. <laughs> oh, hey, no, I mean, I, I think just for me, it's it's one of these things of, there's a thread on this show in which I am poking at the armor, parameterizing the idea of the individual, mm-hmm. because we live in this networked world that discloses to us through its affordances, like through the way that we actually relate to an interactive and increasingly intelligent, responsive technological environment that more and more every day looks and, and acts like the wilderness that we thought we were eradicating with technology and kind of still, you know, we are eradicating, but we've created another wilderness on top of it. And in, and in this new wilderness, it pokes holes in some of the conceits that we had about ourselves as discrete rather than continuous and, and like folded over in a higher dimensional analysis with all of these other beings, you know, and there's all these different levels at which things are happening. So this is just me enjoying spiraling down the drain, really, uh, <laughs> inquiry. But yeah, ultimately, when all of this comes to the question of effective altruism, then it seems like there's still a human in the loop, if you will, that there's no place where we can cut this and say, oh, the data suggests this is the best way for you to be a philanthropist, for example. I mean, Elon Musk tweet about his, how do you find good ways to spend money to make the world a better place? How do you do it? And all of us have our blinders and our cognitive constraints, metabolic attentional constraints. Yes. So I'll I'll jump yeah. in here because you said um, there's a human in the loop. Um, so first, so the research by 80,000 hours, which is about what to do with your life, basically, because one on average works 80,000 hours. They also really factor in, of course, you have to go with what are your um, skills, uh, what are your, your your interests and so forth. But of course, you cannot suddenly jump out of who you are and what you subjectively enjoy and so forth. So um, I think the main idea really is just read through all the analysis that's written up there. Because in the end, you have certain values. And if you then are presented with quite good arguments, where, for example, working on another problem will reach this value more then of course, also your um, your passion or your, what makes you spark <laughs> will also change. Because once you, for example, are convinced that one way is not as uh, just like powerful to get you where you want it, then just digesting this information will also change how you feel about it. But in the end, of course, you are you are not uh, omniscient. You're not perfectly objective, whatever that even means. I think it's not even important to want that. But yeah, for me, one of the main values of, of effective altruism is basically just being really um, epistemically <laughs> responsible <laughs> and humble and to, to not just like very naively think you have the, t- the solution <laughs> to fixing the world, but to really looking at the da- data, <laughs> looking at also just like different opinions, right? Because th- that's where you can learn the most. And yeah, just do your best job regarding just educating yourself. But then of course you can only act on on what then feels right to you because what else would you do? <laughs> so there's a term that I saw you sharing again and, and talking about on social that I really enjoy. You were actually talking about this just, just a moment ago about bridging the gap between two different minds, between one one worldview and another, and how many steps it takes to get from one to the other as the inferential distance. 
Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, insofar as when I look at social science, that's talking about the biases that we carry because of our local networks, where we project our estimates about the world based on a local sampling to everything else, which is one of these network science insights where everyone is revealed to be wrong. But no matter what it is, if you are not privileged along a given axis, that means you're in the majority. So you're less biased by default just statistically. So like, for example, if you're in a happy relationship, you can presume more, most people are either not in a happy relationship or are like single. And so you're making assumptions about other people's relationships just because of your local situation. And obviously the same is true for wealth. There's a reason why the meritocratic narrative self-reinforces and then pushes out other more social support oriented approaches. So I guess with that in mind, in our quest for truth, in order to do good, we have to like really step out of our boxes, right? We have to find people that are dramatically unlike ourselves somehow in order to invite these other perspectives into a more complete understanding. And like you said, there's like an epistemic humility involved in that, but this is not really like in most cases incented, right? It's mm -hmm. easier to talk to people that understand you. It's easier to yes. talk to people that, that you don't have to spend time. There isn't that upfront cost of having to articulate everything you want to say from first principles. And most of the time on this show, I'm just like, let's just crash these two things together and see what happens. <laughs> but again, I, I'm just curious how this works in your own life and in the way that you think of things and the way that you practice all this stuff about how you think about, how you talk about inferential distance when it comes to people seeing the world in different ways. And then how, you know, knowing that, how you correct for all of these things, I guess in a way what I'm asking is sort of like a, what are your probiotics question? <laughs> In that, like, you know that you are a plural thing. You know that you are a social creature. So how do you strategically patch up your social ecosystem? Like, how do you fill the life around you, your relationships with other people, the kind of relationships that you seek out, the kind of strategies that you deploy in those relationships, given all of this? That's what I'm actually asking. Okay. <laughs> okay. That was a lot of questions. I can't wait. There was so much in there. Ah, This is one of those things where, you know, we'll review this and realize that we got to almost none of the questions that we were asking and that's okay. That was to be expected. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wait, you said a couple of things like being biased by where you're locally embedded uh, because when you're in a happy relationship, you kind of assume everyone has that too. I think, yeah, I think they're just really looking at some world data is very grounding. So for example, there's a project by Gapminder called Dollar Street where you just see kind of everyday items and living situation of people based on income. It's just very grounding because, of course, it's easy to compare yourself upwards. And um, I know there's like people that are many orders of magnitudes, richer than me, but I'm nevertheless easily in the top 10. And I think even my, my flat that could be way nicer designed is way nicer than anything I've seen on Gapminder uh, on, on Dollar Street. So things like that are just very grounding or then just looking at the, the visualization of the global burden of disease. So basically where suffering and death based on disease is coming from when you sum it all up and then getting an overview of how that's globally aggregated and then just being happy about all the things you don't have and just <laughs> seeing the representation of the things that are not uh, like locally represented around you. 
like for example, seeing how many people are still dying of malaria and schistosomiasis, which is like having parasites in your blood and brain <laughs> and just like diarrhea, which is like still leading cause of death globally, stuff like that. I mean, that's what measuring is for uh, in this global sense to just as this sense that you don't have, right? So it kind of translates bigger things uh, in, in just something you can take in and then integrate into your view of the world and also to, to localize yourself. And then, okay, I don't really know how to make the transition, but one thing about being socially embedded in a real world uh, and with all this knowledge. So one thing that, that I repeatedly notice is you cannot just start doing good or changing anything by understanding a system and then wishing one parameter was just changed for everyone right that's just you cannot act that way usually you have you are like this one person and you can do certain things and so basically your actions matter if you want to think about how you can actually make a difference it's okay everything you do matters and you have to be intentional about that and this can really also just mean what behavior do you reward <laughs> or punish in your environment and then just really being yeah intentional about that. For example, when someone is changing their mind, rewarding them. Just like in saying like, wow, that's very good. Honestly, behaving consistent and authentic with your own values. And that's just basically all you can do, right? Because you're not this omniscient being. I mean, I started out with having this worldview where you're just like, oh, we will now optimize everything. And if we could just change just one thing, right? But you, you just cannot. You can just only do what you are doing, which is sounds ridiculous and, and self-referential, but it's also just true. And then how I choose the people in my own life. Um, I think, first of all, it's very, very important. Environment matters a lot. Um, so where, where I got a lot of the mindset around that from is actually my gym, which is Das Gym, the best gym of the world. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the founder there really always makes this point of like how the environment shapes you. And everyone there is just, they just know what they're doing. And it's just so good. And just like going there, you just have this pressure to, I also know what I'm doing. I'm training hard and it just lifts you up so much. Uh, it's just really good. And then as I reward people for the values I have by just spending nice time with them, right? Like implicitly, I'm not, I don't think they need my reward or anything. But as I implicitly do that, um, I, I also choose people that I think are striving for similar values. Or even if they have completely different beliefs about how the world is or how to get there. Yeah, I think that's the mindset underneath. So many topics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So one of the things that's been really messing with me, troubling me lately, and I think I've spoken to this already, and I'm, I'm just curious what you'd think if I try to articulate this in a slightly more pointed way. Anchoring our assessments and data is the best we can do, right? It's a, certainly a patch against individual bias, but there's that deeper level where we acknowledge that the research that created the data was shaped by a you know a system of funding that emphasizes certain kinds of questions and inquiries over others and maybe we're not noticing and therefore not measuring the most important stuff and part of this is you know just as as a concrete example the problem of thinking about like climate change for instance as a collective action problem because it's so abstract to people like this is a clear cognitive bias thing where people i forget the term for this but people weight visceral tangible risk vastly more than the abstract risk even if the abstract risk is vastly more probable and the stakes are vastly higher. And because of all of the gains that come with convenience and efficiency and economies of scale, we get into these situations where a disaster happens, 
a society adapts to it. They build in resilience. They find a way to move with the messiness of the real world. And then over time, that sort of dries out and it forms these brittle patterns again. You know, we collectively, we forget. And so we see this in, in the way that we actually measure things. And it's interesting to watch on a world scale, this, this effort to try and move into what my, my friend and mentor, Sean Hargens called meta capital or meta impact accounting, where, you know, you're not looking at just what can be quantified. You're looking at qualitative data also with the understanding that measurement itself is transformative. So it's just this thing again of, is there a way sitting with this challenge of realizing how, because we have in important ways come together, the society can be regarded as an individual in its own regard. That individual displays biases that are similar in some respects to the biases that each of us have as individuals. And so how do we get around those? You know, it, it's just an endlessly receding challenge of... It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, thank you for this very easy question that I definitely can answer. <laughs> I need you to solve this for us now. <laughs> um, uh, so there's, again, a couple of things I could say about that. Uh, so first of all, because you said, spoke about measurement, so I've been quite uh, active in the in the quantified self movement to yeah just like track data about yourself and then f learn about yourself. And I'm also giving regular workshops and and just lectures on impact measurement because for me that's very related to effective altruism, but also relates to just KPIs in in just like organizations of any kind. And what you said, right? So um, of course, also what we measure influences again the thing itself. <laughs> For, so, for example, one notion, like, first of all, of course, by what you measure, you also communicate what matters and then actually change behavior of people. So that's very important. But also measuring itself is also an intervention. So, for example, when I, for fitness purposes, track a certain, I don't know, let's say macros or something, the measurement, of course, it's also an action I have to do. And it then puts my attention towards the, this information. And then I will like kind of build an intuition of, around food based on that. But it's also an action itself. And it is not just objective observation, but it is itself an intervention. And that has to be really taken into account. Like, especially I often make the point in organizations, because, for example, let's say a CEO tries to just introduce a lot of KPIs and suddenly the, the employees have to track everything the main impact will be that they will be really, really annoyed. <laughs> um, so even when you want to study productivity, there's there's just a trade-off of just like, okay, the, the more information I gain versus, for example, the time it takes to actually track it. So of course you want uh, software that just does it without you having to do anything. I think just like the mindset of knowing that introducing a certain measurement also usually can change behavior in the end. So that's important. Um, and then regarding collective decision-making or intelligence reaching our goals. Yeah, I mean, obviously super hard. <laughs> but like first, Derek, because you said we all have limited uh, attention. And I really like the notion by Toby Ort from the Future of Humanity Institute, because he really has this term, I think it's just brilliant, which is called the attention portfolio of humanity. And just really thinking about how big or um, are certain problems uh, represented in there. And he wrote this book called The Precipice, where he summarized different risks to humanity that are currently completely neglected again and are not reflected in any policy. So just like very um, tangible like information for that would, for example, be um, when we think about the treaties on bioweapons. <laughs> so it sounds very fancy and big, but 
what he found out in his research on that is that there's like basically, I think like four people or something working on that and no one is really implementing anything and it's less funded than the average McDonald's. Uh, so just like looking at kind of like what we objectively know are real risks and so forth objectively, quote unquote, um, versus what's actually implemented. I think there's a total mismatch and his work is very important. You can very much recommend the, the whole research they are doing. But how to actually, well, implement things like that, I think just getting the information out there of like really top down, looking at what do we know might happen? What is a real risk? And that's not reflected. And then the, the thing you can just do is bringing the information out there because you cannot start implementing all of that. So now I hope many people will get this and hopefully people in, in policy will also think about what that means. There's so much, so much to do that's not yet done. And I think, um, so his book came out, uh, I think 2019, and of course, pandemic risk is one of the points. <laughs> and for me, in my life as an effective altruist, I really am quite certain that we're doing things right. <laughs> but then like this book coming about the analysis of risk and then like actually a pandemic hitting, that was very like, oh my God, what does this mean about all the other things that are mentioned in there as real risks we are facing? That is uh, very frightening. <laughs> I hope we're wrong on all the others, but I think we're not. <laughs> Yeah, it's similar to the question of preparing for a solar flare or a meteor strike or something. It's yeah. So there's a possible hack, I feel like here where you get into this this question of there is an enormous gap, an enormous inferential distance between people yes. that must be bridged at least partway in order to get people to even begin to have cohesive conversations about these issues in such a way as we can collectively aggregate process uh, and then act on all of these differing views in a way that leads to something other than just brown, mixing all the colors together and getting the average of all of the colors, which is what it feels like politics usually is in a weird way. It's like, we're going to polarize everyone. Yeah, but like two two colors. Yeah, we're gonna, <laughs> not one. Yeah, we're just going to create a centrifuge and then the, no one will be happy because we're going to give them something that's like the average of everyone's extreme positions. So you mentioned that you have an interest in information design. And this is one of those things where I think, you know, for me, when I think about communication generally, something that has pestered me for my entire adult life is, and it's sort of related to that question about how much time do you gather information before you act on it, is how much can you compress, like how much can you simplify an idea so that it can be widely understood before yes. it loses its meaning, it loses its rigor. You know, how much how much can a, a concept be generalized before it's broken? And yes. because it feels like to me that one of the big challenges that we're going to face in the century and beyond is similar to intercultural challenges that humans have faced since forever, but perhaps even like ratcheted up a level now to include diverse neurotypes and so on, possibly even ultimately people that are like hacking their way into, or, you know, or our relationships with AI, for example, would be a great one where we're, we're tangoing with these distinctly non-human intelligences and we have to collaborate with them. And so how do you structure information in a way that it's legible to both human and machine is kind of a question related to this question of how do you put climate data into a form that then allows people on both sides of a political spectrum to have a meaningful discussion about it without getting lost in the, in the weeds 
And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, inf- you know, how you think about information design and how that all weighs in on all of these other things. So the two main assumptions I have are there's just so much information out there, but as long as it's not relevant to you, the information can both be useful as well as harmful. And the more there's just this mess, <laughs> the more we really need um, people who do a good job at curation of information. So really aggregating, making sense, so so to say, signal uh, in it. Um, and then the idea of information design and really visualizing it is uh, the idea that um, just like perception, seeing is just very close to understanding. So right, that's what, also why we say, I see. That's also what we know from the research by Kahneman and Tversky, where, for example, expert intuition in chess, it's not your system two, the effortful thinking, but by practicing it, it really becomes part of your system one, which is very closely linked to perception, which means an expert chess player sees strong moves. He will not even consider other things because he looks at the chess board and then really already focuses on strong moves because it really the training with the feedback is then ingrained in perception. And also the other way around, having the same information represented in a text in a sequential manner is both very effortful to read, right? You have to sequentially go through it to see anything. But when you, for example, see the two entities being linked very strongly, then you immediately grasp what's there. And then the things pop out to you in the relevance, like what's bigger probably means it's more important. So you can digest the whole knowledge in a very different way than in text format. So um, that's really my, my main thinking of why that matters. And yeah, so just having availability of relevant information is very much needed. Uh, And I think in science in general, that's just not done enough because there's just so much published. But right, I always wonder, okay, but what for? (laughs) And if no one knows it, it's even there, then it does matter, so to speak. And then, of course, the question is what matters and like other (laughs) easy topics like that. But yeah, I just find the whole topic of science journalism, science communication, and accordingly, uh, uh, information design very, very important. So what do you, what do you hope to build? Let's make this just like the simplest and most concrete thing. You know, typically I end these discussions by inviting people to reflect on the notion of time as a crystal, right? Like a static object. The past exists, the future exists in some sense that, you know, we're simultaneous and therefore what does it mean to live life under the working assumption that you're being witnessed by the distant future and because it's in that sense simultaneous also that future is influencing you in like a top-down way right like it's part of your model of the world that is inspiring your action in the moment so what is the future that you are hoping to help build that is building you? That's a very beautiful question. <laughs> um, okay, I had to spontaneously come up with, with a concrete answer. And I would say, so there's like three three main ideas um, that will come to my mind. And so the first one would be, what do I want to build? Uh, I want to build a, a community. So I really love bringing people together. I've already done this in a lot of just event management and from conference or unconference I've, I've created. Just like one-on-one telling people, you talk to this person and then just like uh, ima- amazing uh, things just happen from there from in, in the end sometimes just people getting married which is really amazing um, um, and so communities bringing people together where things happen whatever they are uh, just 
we will see there. Uh, we will see afterwards. Um, but also just like, I mean, I study psychology because I just find humans the most interesting thing in the world. So, <laughs> um, and then the second thing would be just really, um, just from my journey in just education and constantly gathering more information, really doing exactly that, what I just said about information design, just aggregating information and then putting it out again for others, like I did with this um, cognitive science map uh, where I just summarized the, the last uh, 80 years and the, the main developments there was, yeah, so that was a nice project where I learned a lot and then others learn a lot uh, too. Um, the the uh, founder of uh, Domains of Science is, is doing a very good job with, with his maps as well. I really, really enjoy that as a uh, as a project where he summarizes f full fields of knowledge. Uh, but I hope to like focus more on probably cognitive science, but I don't know, like right, you don't know in advance where your education and updating journey will take you. Um, and then the third thing is just really um, way more concrete thing. So um, yeah, as I said, I'm just like on this journey of learning more, becoming stronger in every sense. And um, yeah, I hope to just fix some concrete problems we have, like probably with a company or what, whatever at some point. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> if you could ask a question of the unborn archaeologists listening to this in 100 years, what would you want to know? What would you hope that you could be, what would you hope that they could explain to you without enormous heavy lifting to close the inferential distance between the two of you? Um, probably did history repeat itself or could we actually make progress? That's the real heart of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Because, I mean, how do you even, you have to have the same values as, that future right in order to in order for any kind of assessment of progress to actually work i don't know gosh anna it's been a pleasure i i, I appreciate your flexibility with this rescheduling this call and and the time that you've you've given me to just have a completely ridiculous undisciplined conversation about a topic that you and i are clearly just passionate about in the most childlike way uh, this was beautiful thank you so much for the invitation yeah anything else that you'd like to say to folks before we sign off any other parting thoughts too many to say one <laughs> excellent thanks so much for being on future fossils thank you so much oh my god this went really well <laughs> thanks again for listening future fossils is an independent entirely listener supported program if you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon. <laughs>